How many of you are ready to go through Romans chapter 7? All righty. Good to see all of you. And why don't we just offer up a prayer right now and ask God to be with us as we get into his word. Father, we just thank you that this is the very word of God. And we pray that you will be high and lifted up. We pray that, Lord, you will edify, strengthen, exhort, and comfort your people. And, Lord, help us to better understand what Jesus did for us on the cross and we thank you for it in your mighty name. Amen. All right, I got to ask, I do it every week. How many of you have read ahead? Oh, we're getting better every week. Amen. You know, it struck me, this may sound strange to you, but I preached Sunday on what we had covered the Wednesday before and what really kind of sets us up for tonight. And it was not intentional. I wish I could say that I was that smart. But it it just kind of rolled that way because I've been on this series about abiding uh, in the vine. How many of you know we must abide in the vine? You cannot. And how do you abide in the vine? You abide in the vine by getting into his word every single day. Can I tell you the truth? If you don't get into the word daily, it's going to tell on you. Right? And if you do get into the word daily, it's going to tell on you. Um. Jesus said, we're to pray, give us this day. Our what kind of bread? Daily bread. We kind of think that that has to do with, um, you know, his provision of just real bread. But it's both. I believe every day God wants to give us daily bread for our souls. So we get into the word of God to, to do that. Now, we're in Romans 7 tonight, and if you would just go to the first page, I want to once again take us to our little acronym for Romans, and it is, R is the cross, that's the first 17 verses of Romans 1, the the cross or the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and while I say that, let's remember that we have about 10 of our church members in the Honduras right now. Uh, that are ministering the gospel with Stephen Evans and the Light of Life International. And we're believing to hear about a great, great harvest from that. So they are in the middle of a genuine crusade. Thousands and thousands of people coming out to hear the gospel in Honduras. Amen? Amen. And what are they preaching? They're preaching the cross. What else are you going to preach? The cross. Then uh, chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20 is the ditch. We're all in sin. Uh, it's too bad that so many pulpits in the, in the land no longer inform people of this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And that means all need a Savior. Amen? We all need a Savior. Um, but then, after we get out of the ditch, we're on the road. And that's chapter 321 through chapter 5. And the road is God presents us as righteous before God through faith in Christ. It is by faith. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, um, lest any man should boast. It is a gift from God, right? Then A is the plan, and that's chapter 6 through 8, and that's where we are right now. We're in chapter 7, the plan. And what is that? The Lord calls us to live out righteous lives by Christ's power within us. Powerful. Then we get to N, and N is chapters 9 through 11. And I told you last time, N is red meat, deep theology. Because N, or 
chapters 9 through 11 have to do with God's sovereign plan for the entire world, including Israel. And it is deep T-bone steak theology. And so buckle your seatbelts for that because that's really good stuff. Then chapters 12 through 16, as we find every time with Pauline epistles, and when I say Pauline, I mean of Paul, all right? Pauline epistles end always with practical how to apply. Thank you. You didn't know, but I was just operating as Mr. Magoo. And I got here and realized I didn't have my glass. But you know what? I was reading it fine. You know what I'm going to do by faith? I'm serious. Where can I put them? Here. And if I look your way, it means my faith is for another day. All right. Yeah. But I'm reading it fine. It's a miracle. All right. Now, all the Pauline epistles end with practical how to apply what I just told you. So he takes rich, deep theology and he makes it practical. Here's how you walk out what I just told you. All right. And I so appreciate that aspect of, well, God moving on Paul. That's the way God moved on him to write. Now, here we are, part seven. And how many of you can recognize this title when you do what you don't want to do? How many of you have done what you didn't want to do so far this year, at least once? The rest of you just lied in church. Let me try it again. How many of you have done what you didn't want to do at least once this year? And you said, how in the world did I say that, think that, do that? Come on, let me see. And do I have real humans with me? All right. Now, last time we saw in chapter six that our old man, the old nature has been crucified with Christ. And I preached on that Sunday. Therefore, the believer is what everyone reckoned to be dead indeed to sin. Dead indeed to sin. And Paul said, you're to know that. Now, in chapter seven, Paul vividly describes men as being either natural carnal or spiritual. Those are three types of people he describes in this chapter. So again, natural, carnal, spiritual. What are they? The natural man is the unsaved man who can rise no higher than his intellectual, moral, or or personal willpower can lift him. He is ruled by his senses, all right? That's the natural man. He's lost. He's not saved. He's living by his senses. And and as I shared Sunday, he has one nature, not two, all right? He's born once, so he has the fallen nature. If you're born twice, born again, you have two natures at war within you. You have the fallen nature and the new nature, and they battle one another all the time. How many of you battled your old nature today? Come on, you had a battle with that old flesh, that old man, right? All right. So that's the natural man. He's lost. But then we come to the carnal man. The carnal man is a saved man, but he's still dominated at least partially by the power of sin and under the control of the old nature. Now, can I go out on a limb here and tell you that's most Christians in America? You know why? Because we haven't been taught good theology. You know why? Because we're too, being, uh, too busy being taught 
God wants you rich. God wants you to have a mansion. He wants you to have a Bentley in the garage. He wants you to be successful and you got it going on, girl. And he wants you to get out there and, and rock the world because you are incredible and you are something else and you are a great big bundle of potentiality. And we're not taught theology anymore. We're not taught doctrine anymore. But it's the doctrine that sets you free because Jesus said, you'll know the truth. What truth? Not just what he said, but what his apostles taught, right? And that's what sets us free. So if we're, if we're just getting motivational seminars from pulpits, the body of Christ is going to wind up anemic. And that's what's happened. That's why so many people are still carnal. They're saved, but they're carnal. Carnal man is a saved man, still dominated, at least partially by the power of sin, under the control of the old nature. He still holds grudges. He still flies off the handle with, with terrible anger. He's still got vices and habits that God could easily set him free from. Uh, he, he's still looking like the world, talking like the world, walking like the world. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is not happening to him. And what is that? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not what? Conformed to what? This world. But be what? Transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Well, how do we get our minds renewed? Theology, doctrine, New Testament and Old Testament teaching, but primarily New Testament, what Jesus taught and what his apostles taught, moved on by the Holy Spirit, how to live this life out and what Jesus did for us on the cross. How many pulpits preached? And I'm not bragging on myself here. Listen, I'm nothing. I'm the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The donkey was nothing. And if he thought the Hosannas was for him, he was a fool. The Hosannas were for the one he was bringing into Jerusalem. And that's the way it is with any true minister. I, I'm nothing, but I am presenting to you somebody who is something, right? Who is everything. Okay, what's the spiritual man? We have natural man, carnal man, spiritual man. Is the believer whose life is controlled by the Holy Spirit, as we've been teaching for four weeks now on Sundays. These three men or types of people are in view in Romans 7. First, the apostle tells us that believers are dead to the law. That is human effort to be righteous. That's the law. Performance, jump through the hoops. You've got to do it. You've got to achieve the righteousness of God. That's the law. The law no longer wields authority over us in its demands that we obey it in our own strength, that our level of righteousness hinges on our own performance. We've been set free from that. Religion is all about, you do this, you do that. And, and, and mark my words, folks, every cult that departs from Christianity, every group of people that depart from Christianity, as in the New Testament, and form a cult. The cult will always be based on something you've got to do. You've got to do. Look at the Mormons. Look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, to name two major ones. But there's a lot of cultic-type things out there, more than I've ever seen in my life. 
And I've been around a while, being 50. Okay. Now watch this. Cults will always add to what God requires to be saved. But real Christianity has nothing to do with you or me performing anything. It is all by grace, all by faith, none by us. All right? So he says, do you not know, this is verse one, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he, the man, lives. Now follow this carefully, because he's about to draw a parallel with marriage and us and our walk. Naturally, when a person dies, the law, or any laws for that matter, have no more power over them, right? If you die tonight, the speed limit signs out there have no power over you. You could care less, right? Okay. They are dead to law, and the law is dead to them. A book of laws is an irrelevant document to a dead person. Do I have an amen? amen. Okay, now, you got to follow him because the brilliant mind of Paul is being used by God here to make a major point. Keeping that in mind, Paul now gives us an illustration involving marriage. Verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. She's released from her marital covenant. Okay? So then, verse 3, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Now picture for a moment an unhappy marriage in which the marriage vows have become a hated, resented burden. Yet even so, there's no release from this bondage until death severs the relationship. Now, the law of marriage holds that couple firm and fast in God's sight. Maybe not on their sight, but in God's sight. But when one of the two dies, the other is set free from the marriage vows. The death of the one makes void the other's status as a spouse in the eyes of the law. Now you're a widower or a widow. Widower or a widow. All right. Paul is making the case that the law's power ends at death. What's the law? You've got to jump through hoops. You've got to perform the righteousness required to be accepted by God. All right. It's you do, you do, you do. That's the law. All right. He says the law's power over you to make you jump through hoops ends at death. The law represents performance religion where one is forced to try to be righteous, try to live up to God's standard in his own strength and willpower, and, and it's a miserable marriage. You know why? Because you can't do it. 
You can't do it. Right when I think I've got one commandment licked, I break the other one. You can't do it. And so here, here were the people before Jesus. Follow this now. Here's the people before Jesus. Everybody under Moses. Everybody under Moses. They're under the law. And what are they given? The Ten Commandments. Let's just start there. That's not the only thing, but that's the main thing. That is the, the summation of the requirements of God to be righteous. So, so they're under this. And Moses comes down, face glowing in the dark. You know, he looks like a lit up sparkler on the 4th of July. They got to cover his face because even the giving of the law uh, came with glory. And so he's got to cover up his face. So, man, the guy's been with God. And he's coming down with these stone tablets that, that he didn't chisel out, but the very finger of God etched them into the stone. So who's not going to take that seriously? He's glowing in the dark. He's got these things etched by the finger of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. So they go, all right. Now I know what God requires. Here we go. And then quickly they realize, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Right when I think I've got it licked, I don't have it licked. Right when I think I'm going to do it, I don't do it. I fail every time. And yet this is what's expected of me. And it was a miserable marriage. How, how miserable would a marriage be if the two spouses could never come to terms? If it was constant failure to meet each other's needs, to not understand each other, to not be able to truly fellowship. How miserable would that be? That's what the marriage was like, spiritually speaking, between the law and people. It was a miserable marriage. But the spiritual believer, the spiritual believer, remember the three kinds, the, th the spiritual believer knows an easier way to victory. Quote, verse four, quote, so my brothers, you also, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Now follow me. This is, this is the meat of the word. When a person turns to Christ for forgiveness and is justified by grace through faith, the claims of the law over him or her are broken. They're broken. That is, our righteousness is no longer dependent upon our own performance. No, seeing that we were never able to fully obey the law in the first place. The old miserable marriage to sin, hateful and unbearable, and made even worse by the law, which only served to magnify the sinfulness of our sin, is over. That marriage is now dissolved. Why? Because somebody died. Who? You. You died. Remember what I preached Sunday? We are dead to sin. We were what with Christ? Crucified. Well, anything on a cross dies. Okay? So we died. And when we died, we were no longer then beholden to that old law and jumping through hoops 
and trying to achieve what we could never achieve. Because now we're under grace where he achieved it, Jesus did. He perfectly kept the law and fulfilled the law and his righteousness is imputed to us, given to us, reckoned to us, attributed to us, put into our spiritual bank account. Amen. This is really, this is why so many Christians are carnal because they don't, they haven't been taught. They don't understand. They don't get a grip on these kinds of truths. Okay. The believer is now married to another. Who are we married to? Jesus Christ. We're the bride. He's the bridegroom. We're waiting for the bridegroom to return so that we, the bride can be with him. Amen. Now, let's remember back a moment. Do you recall the day the Holy Spirit came and pointed you to God's dear son? Do you remember that? And prompted you to call on him for forgiveness? In essence, the Spirit of God was saying this to you. Do you take this man to be your savior? (laughs) Will you take him for richer or for poorer, for sickness or for health, for better or for worse, for time and for all eternity? And we said, I do. In that moment, the old marriage to sin was dissolved and you were married to another even to him who is raised from the dead. You got on an engagement ring. You know what the engagement ring is? The Holy Ghost living inside of you. That's right. Because he's been given as an earnest or a down payment of what is coming. Yeah, we got, we got an engagement ring. When the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, that was the engagement ring. That was him saying, you're mine, I'm yours, and one day I'm coming to get you, and until that marriage is fully consummated in heaven, right now, you are betrothed to me. That's right. That's the teaching of the New Testament. Now the believer belongs to Christ. And our love, life, and loyalty all belong to him. Rather than living under the performance-demanding tyranny of the law, the believer now lives on the terms of intimate relationship with that risen one who has canceled sin and conquered death and satisfied the law. Verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Wow. Can we just take a minute and just thank Jesus for what he did for us? Can we just lift our hands and say, thank you, Lord, that I'm, I'm engaged to you. I'm married to you. You're my, you're my husband. You're my betrothed. And and Lord, we thank you for what you did. Thank you for delivering us from the tyranny of that law that we could never satisfy and bringing us under grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise, amen. Amen. Now, let's be clear. It's not the law that God has put to death. It's the believer that was put to death. Instead of the pressure to perform and conform to the letter, which is the rules of conduct demanded by the law, the believer now indwelt by the Holy Spirit fulfills the spirit of the law. In other words, the believer now walks by grace, not rules and regulations impossible to give up or live up to. Uh, this is what water baptism is all about. See, when, I, when we baptize in water, you will, well, you can't 
always hear them or you can't ever hear them. You only see them going down in the water. But here's what we say. Do you, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Yes, I have. Based on your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with him. Say it with me. Buried with him. What does that mean? It's symbolizing what has truly happened. I have been buried with him by baptism into his death. Baptism into his death. And raised to walk in the newness of life. The whole idea is water baptism symbolizes I've been buried with him. I have died with Jesus. That's what Paul meant when he said, I I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. I was buried with him by baptism into his death. And now I have been raised to walk in the newness of life. So you're leaving the old man in that water, the old life in that water. And now you've got a brand new life. And and so you coming up out of the water represents you being resurrected to live, truly live as Jesus was resurrected from the grave. That's what water baptism represents. But it, but it is a truism. It, it's a truth. We were buried with him. That means we died with him. Amen. And raised to walk in the newness of life. How many of you are so glad for a new life in Christ? Amen. Brand new life. If you haven't been water baptized, you better get water baptized. It won't save you, but it's the first act of obedience for every believer. Amen? First act of obedience. Well, I don't want to get baptized in front of all those people. Well, Jesus went up Golgotha's hill for you, naked and bleeding, and died on a cross of shame and pain so we can be baptized in water. Because what we're doing is we're testifying to the whole world. I've been buried with him. My old life is buried with him. My old man was crucified with him. And now I have been raised to live a brand new life. Amen. 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 Now, let's talk about our struggle with sin. Next, Paul makes clear that just because the law revealed to us our sinfulness doesn't make the law bad. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because the law amplified and magnified our sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. The proposal that the law was sin was ridiculous to Paul. Because some were saying, well, the law is sin because it makes me sinful. And the law is bad because of what it revealed in me. And that was false. Paul argues, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. What it revealed is what was bad, for the law exposed and highlighted the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. Paul says, I didn't fully realize that I was covetous until the law, Moses' commandments, made it clear to me that I was covetous. The law, in fact, was designed to bring man to the end of himself. That's what the commandments were for. They weren't given so we could live them. They were given so we could realize I can't live them because they, 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 I want to choose words carefully here. They whipped us into Christ because I said, I I can't live it. What am I going to do? I'm so glad you asked, said God. I want to bring you in by faith and grace. 
Okay? So the law defines sin and makes us aware of it. Once we see the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and our helplessness in overcoming it, the law drives us to Christ. Amen. Verse, or look at Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our teacher, our instructor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, not our own performance. There came a time in Paul's life when he utterly came to an end of himself. And this is what he's describing by the following verses. Verse 8. Paul says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. Now watch this carefully, everybody. What does that mean? Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. And I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. What's he saying? Let's say we go out on I-35 as soon as church is over. And let's say there's no speed limit signs at all. Let's say there never have been. All right? No speed limit signs. (laughs) Can you imagine that? People are driving like there aren't any. Anyway. But anyway. So there's no speed limit signs. So we get on the highway. There's never been any. There's just a highway. So there's some folks get out there and they barrel down that highway going 100 miles an hour. Now there's no speed limit signs. There's no law. Because there's no law, there's no speed limit. So follow me now. So the one going 100 is not breaking the law. Because there isn't any law. So he's not guilty. You're not guilty of anything. There's no law. And let's say somebody else gets on there and goes 30. So you got one going 100, woof. The other one, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. The Sunday morning driver. He's going so slow. But he's not breaking any laws either because there's no law. There's no speed limit sign. But then suddenly... Law is set in place and speed limit signs are put in the ground. The one going 100, whoosh, goes right past it and the speed limit sign says 60. The one going 30 finally crawls up to it and sees 60. Now, both are now doing what? Breaking the law. Before there was law, they were not guilty. And what Paul is saying is, Before Moses gave the law, I was alive, meaning I didn't really understand what God's speed limits were. I had a conscience and I could, you know, I could maybe know that it's it's wrong to kill somebody or to steal something, but however, the law had never been given. So I'm going past all the speed limit signs that aren't there. And because they're not there, I'm not guilty. But as soon as Moses brought that law down the mountain, then mankind became guilty because we realized when we saw all the thou shalt nots, I'm guilty, 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 guilty. What shall I do? I'll obey them. But then you find I can't obey them. 
Because when I get one thou shalt not right, I break a thou shalt not over here. And so what does it do? It showed me, woe is me. What am I going to do? Because I can't keep these laws. And God said, I want you to realize that because I intend to send a savior and you will be saved by grace through faith and his righteousness will be uh, imputed to you where you're not jumping through hoops. He's jumped through all the hoops for you. And the great hoop jumper is going to have his hoop jumping attributed to you. I've never put it that way, (laughs) but it works. All right. So the great function of the Mosaic law is to expose sin. Men try to cover sin, excuse it, and camouflage it. They call sin by other names, don't they? They remove the skull and crossbones label from the bottle of sin and replace it with something attractive and appealing, don't they? Oh, yeah. But the Mosaic law will not allow man to do this with impunity. Not the Mosaic law. The function of the law is to give sin its proper name and to expose it for what it is. Paul next points out another fact about the law. It actually goes so far as to provoke sin. Verse 11 and 12, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. And then he asked a question. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Sin was the culprit, not the law. The law is good, and only because it is good can it expose the sinfulness of sin. Look at verse 13. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, at this point in chapter 7, Paul switches from past to present as he continues to explain the relationship between the law and sin. Verse 14, we know the law is spiritual, but I am what? Unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a slave cannot act on his own will, can he? Or he wouldn't be a slave. A slave is a slave because he can't do what he wants. He's bound to obey his master. His noble desires will be overruled and crushed by the one who owns him. Through this illustration of slavery, Paul explains why he was unable to obey the law. As sin's slave, he had to do his master's bidding. No matter how much he delighted in God's law, he was powerless to fulfill it because sin had dominion over him. Quote, he goes on, verses 15 through 20. I do not understand what I do. Now here we can all understand with what what he's about to describe. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And I just stop here because we're coming close to the end. He's, he's giving us here the predicament that all people face. Once we know God's law, what he wants, even if we have never heard the commandments, we still have a conscience, all right? And the conscience has been um, put into all of us, uh, hardwired into all of us, so that we could have a sense of what's right and wrong. But now, we still have conflict, and we want to do what's right, 
but we fail. Okay? Now, he's going to give us the answer for this in chapter 8. So don't miss next week, because chapter 8 is the answer to chapter 7's dilemma. Okay? Now, he says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. Okay? As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. It's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature that we talked about Sunday, the sinful fallen nature. In that sinful nature, there is nothing good. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. (laughs) Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Right? So Flip Wilson was wrong. Not the devil made me do it. Sin made me do it. Sin. That fallen nature. Now, in verses 21 to 25, Paul transparently lays out an autobiographical account of the struggle in his life between the law of God and the law of sin. Both of these laws contended for the mastery of him. The great apostle had been eager to obey the law of God because as a good Jewish boy, he was raised by the best of them. He was taught by Gamaliel, the master of Mosaic teaching. So he knew the law inside out. But he said, but what was driving me crazy is I knew the law inside out, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't obey it. It was driving me nuts, driving me crazy. It was, I was under a load of guilt, a load of shame, a load of condemnation all the time. He wanted to obey the law of God, but the law of sin would not permit it. Listen to his description of the struggle. He says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Caught in the grip of this intense battle, the apostle cried out for deliverance. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? In the very same breath, he provides the answer. Read it with me, everybody. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, that's a, that is leading into chapter 8. The frustration of Romans 7 sets the stage for the triumph of Romans 8. It's a fact of the Christian life that most earnest believers experience the two conditions described by Paul uh, exist in a sort of cycle. Have you noticed that? You're doing great for a while, and then here comes this battle with that old nature. Remember the three types of people, all right? What was the one that's born again, but still messing up all the time and living hung up and bound to things still and all of that? The carnal Christian. So there's the natural man, the carnal man, the spiritual man. How many of you want to be the spiritual man? Right? So that's in, we're going to learn how to do that in chapter 8. But chapter 7 is laying it out for us. It's setting the stage for chapter 8. Um, you see the picture of the guy like he's praying. 
recognition of our inability to live up to our deepest spiritual longings, chapter 7, leads us to cast ourselves upon God's spirit for power and victory in chapter 8. I got to tell you the truth about something. Um, I've been pastoring a long time. And listen, I'm in no way perfect, nor have I arrived at all. I seek the Lord. I want to grow in him. I want to be a spiritual man like you want to be a spiritual man or woman. I want to walk in that. I've been pastoring a long time. And there has come into the body of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about here. I do a lot of reading. I read about what's going on in the church nationwide, some worldwide, but mainly nationwide because this is where I am. And things have crept into the Western church that shock me, that, that, that I go, carnal Christians. Um, and you know that I don't condemn people. I don't think you'd be here if I was a condemner, but I do want to be truthful. Maybe you've seen some of this, but I'm talking about Christians shacking up, living together, unmarried. And they say, uh, not just that, but that's an example. Um, oh, God understands because we're in love. You go, Really? So love sanctifies sin? Just an example. Well, y'all got so quiet on that one. I'm just like, okay, let me move on. There's this thing of cherry picking the scriptures I like and ignoring the ones I don't like or redefining them. I've been dealing with some folks who have really argue that they're good with God, uh, living in fornication, good with God. So I, I say to them, well, let me give you an assignment or just a simple assignment. Okay. Um, define fornication for me. What is it in the Bible? Define it. And they get all bum fuzzled. Well, it's not what they're saying it means today. Really? Well, okay. Then tell me what it means. Uh, and they can't. Because fornication, we're told to run from as if in terror. That's what it says. I'm just telling you what it says. Okay? Um, Drinking to excess. Um, Having a little bit of Christianity here, some new age there, some cultic beliefs over here. So you end up with this religious kind of stew. It's called syncretism. Syncretism is when you mix one faith with other belief systems. And the real faith is polluted and corrupted because of what else you've let in. But what I guess what it gets me these days is there's no discernment anymore. And you know how you get discernment? You know how you get it? So, well, yeah, it just drops on me. It's a heavy spiritual gift. And I got antenna. And, and I can tell things are evil. Now, let me tell you how you get discernment. You get discernment by knowing your Bible. And the more you know your Bible, the more discerning you're going to be. And, and I'm so concerned for the body of Christ. I am. I, I, you could ask my wife, Cindy, how many times a day I probably walk through the house and 
bellering about something that I've read or seen that shows me that the body of Christ is even further gone into so much deception on so many levels in so many areas. And, and you go, where is discernment? Well, I have to attribute it to, it must be, you know, there's an old saying, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. So if the pulpit is not sharing the word of God, preaching and teaching the true word of God, the sheep aren't going to get it. So my prayer is that preachers get back to the word of God and get out of these motivational seminars and get back to the word of God, teaching the scriptures as they are, teaching them, opening them up. Doctrine. Because I think the body of Christ is anemic and walking around half blind and being deceived by so many things that they ought to immediately say, what are you doing? What are you trying to bring me into that for? That's false. No, it's just, you know, the blind leading the blind. So um, I just wanted to go into that because that carnal Christian thing, God wants us to be spiritual Christians, quickly forgiving full of the understanding of the word of God, walking full of the spirit. And I'm talking to myself here, not just you. I'm talking to Jeff Wickwire here too. I need as, what I'm saying to you, I need it as much as you do. But away with carnal Christianity. We need spiritual men and spiritual women standing up and addressing this nation before it's gone. Seriously. This sanctifying of our life is a gradual and lifelong process as we learn through failure and success, ups and downs, how to depend upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. So he closes with verse 25. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. But he doesn't stop there. Romans 8 is next. Amen? How many of you are glad for the word of God tonight? All right, Brendan, I'm gonna take... Two, maybe three questions, if anybody has any. Do you have a question? Anything I've gone over tonight? Anything? Oh, there are the hands went quick. All right. Here we go. And let me answer two or three questions, if I can. Okay, so at the beginning of chapter 7. Hold it closer. At the beginning of chapter 7. Yes. Paul gives um, the marriage as an example of the law. Right. Okay, so, and then it says you commit adultery. If with you're pretty much committed, right, until death. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount under the verses of divorce, I'm very confused on remarriage as a Christian after divorce. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, it makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So right. how should Christians handle that after you're divorced? Should they remarry? Okay, that's a big question. First of all, in Romans 7, when Paul was using the example of marriage, he, he, was, he was dealing with the issue of marriage and, separate, and divorce and death. Um, he, he was using it illustratively as an illustration so he was not dealing with the nuances 
that can involve themselves in a marriage like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus talked about marriage and divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, that's called the exception clause. Um, the exception clause is that you're not to divorce except in the case of sexual immorality in the marriage. It's not saying you have to divorce because of that, but it's saying you can, okay? Now, and then he goes on to say, uh, and whoever marries her that is divorced commits adultery. But here's where the question comes in. Two things. One, why were they divorced? Why was she divorced? Why was he divorced? Because if they were divorced because of sexual immorality, then one must assume that to remarry is not wrong because they divorced per what Jesus said was the legitimate reason. Then the second thing is, where does God's forgiveness come in? And I know there's good people, and I can name them, preachers. Um, John Piper is one of them, who says flat out, if, if you marry somebody who is divorced, you're committing adultery, and there's no way around it. He's that hard with it. Um, but where does God's forgiveness come in? Would God really say to somebody, you know, there's been a divorce, okay? Now they're out there um, living life. They're alone. Mistakes were made. Um, you know, if they could do it over, they would do it over. But you can't go back and change the past. Is God really going to say, let's say they're 30. Is God going to say to a 30-year-old, you're to stay single the rest of your life because you divorced, okay? I, I want to land, and I'm not endorsing divorce. Listen, if you, uh, if you knew the way we deal with marriages in this church, um, we will encourage you to fight for your marriage to the death. But if it ends, for whatever reason, then does God truly look at somebody and say, there's no forgiveness, there's no restoration, you are damned to loneliness the rest of your life. I can't go there. Now, you say, well, what about what Jesus said? Well, okay, but he also said in other places that repentance brings forgiveness. Sometimes when a verse is really difficult, the best thing you can do is, if, if one verse is hanging you up, you need to look at what the entirety of the word of God has to say. The best interpreter of scripture is scripture, not somebody's book, okay? So for me, you take a difficult verse like that and you go, all right, then I'm gonna look at the rest of the scripture. And what does it say? Well, it talks about forgiveness. It talks about the mercy of God. It talks about the goodness of God. So while rarely, you know, if, if you came in and said, I've got a spouse who is a serial adulterer and they won't change and I can't take this anymore, I'm divorcing. I'm not going to tell you don't, okay? But if you come in also as a 40-year-old who was divorced at 30 
and you've repented, you made mistakes, and you don't want to be alone the rest of your life, and you've met somebody, and you can say, God has forgiven me, I've taken it all to Christ, my former spouse is remarried, whatever, or they're off living in darkness, they have no desire whatsoever to ever be with me again, then I'm not going to tell you, you remain single the rest of your life because of what you did at 30 by divorcing. Because I take the entirety of scripture, not just that one verse. Um, When a verse is foggy, there's other verses somewhere in the Bible on the same topic that aren't. So you look around till you find them. That's why we've got to know the whole word of God. Got to know it. Now that may not be an acceptable answer to some of you, and I'm sorry if it's not, but I've never been divorced. Um, but if I had been, I would like to know five years, 10 years down the road, however long God could say, Jeff, um, you've repented. You've t- brought it to me. It's under the blood. Um, Lord, half of the church or more right now, if there were no mercy from God, is living in adultery. If you're going to just take that one verse and stick with it without searching out the rest of scripture, it would mean half of Christians are in adultery. Why even, why even bother anymore? I'm in adultery. And so I can't, to me, once you say I do again, it's done. And it says, you know, God sees it as much a covenant as the other one. You got to know God's fighting for your marriage and help and wants to help you. If you're going around going, oh, you know, man, oh, I got divorced. I shouldn't have done it. There wasn't any sexual immorality. We just didn't get along. But I'm, I've asked God to forgive me. I was dumb and dumber. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and so now, now I've remarried and you're telling me I'm in adultery. Then why even come to church? Why witness? Why anything? You have to know that God restores. That's my thoughts. And, um, but that's a great question. And, um, that was good enough for Tima to every man an answer. All right. Is there another question? Right back here. Hey, pastor. Hey there. Are we to take every verse and every scripture in the Bible literally, or are there some that we should not take literally? And if not, why? Okay, you got to be careful with that question because literal, let me put it this way. Do I believe that every word as written in the original manuscripts is the God-breathed word? Yes, every one of them, all right? Um, Now, everybody does understand, and this is another teaching. I'll do this quick. But we do understand there was original manuscripts. None of them exist anymore. You do know that. None of them exist. Not the Hebrew, not the Greek. Okay? Old Testament's written in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. None of the originals exist anymore. They were written on papyri. It rots and falls apart. But what, what preserved the scriptures was copyists. C-O-P-Y-I-S-T-S. Copyists. Who took the original manuscripts and copied them. And then more copyists copied those copyists' copies, okay? And they were handed down through the centuries. Now, 
You say, well, wow, what if some of the copies changed? What was said? Um, we would never know. Ah, here's the deal. Let's talk about the New Testament real quick, just for a moment. People say, well, that New Testament, um, that was written by men. And, uh, you know, it's 2,000 years old and different people copied it and people make mistakes. So there's no way you know you've got the original word of God. Now, if I'm a college professor up here, and let's say I'm teaching um, ancient literature, and I'm teaching Homer. Homer's wrote, Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, all right? Homer, he was, he was um, several millennia ago. And I say, all right, we're going to study Homer. Now, then I say to you, do you believe that we have the words of Homer here? Now, all the students will say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what Homer said. Then I'm going to say, but did you know that there's only about seven or eight copies of Homer? We call them extant manuscripts, E-X-T-A-N-T, manuscripts. You know, there's only about seven or eight of them um, that, that we have in existence today to prove or to hold up against each other and compare to make sure that we actually have the words of Homer. So do you still believe we have the words? Oh, yeah, yeah. I believe those seven or eight, they're, they're accurate. Oh, yeah. Go Homer. All right. You know how many extant manuscripts we have of the New Testament? Thousands. Thousands. The New Testament is the most attested to ancient document in the possession of mankind. The New Testament. So you can take later copies that were found, all right, and take those later copies. And then go back to some of the older copies. Let's say of John 3.16. All right, so here we are. I've got uh, the, one of the oldest known manuscript copies of the New Testament, John 3.16. And then I've got one that came centuries later. And I compare them. And there's no difference. There's no difference. And thousands of them, there's no difference. Maybe a little jot or tittle here and there, but nothing that affects the basic meaning at all. So that, amen. So, so what you have in your hand is the most attested to validated ancient document in the world. Now you won't have, so, so do you believe that we've got what John really said, what Matthew really said, Mark, Luke, Paul, James, John, Jude, Peter? Do we really have? Yes, because you can take the oldest ones we've got and compare them to the newest ones we've got, thousands of them, and they agree. So that Men didn't mess it all up. Those monks stooped over, you know, by, by lantern light. Those, those monks uh, from the Middle Ages, for instance, just writing word after word after word with uh, ink quill pens. They did not change anything. Now, back to your question. Literal 
Yes. So, so can I, do I, can I take it literally in that this is the word of God? Yes. Now translations and paraphrases, that's another whole topic. I don't have time to answer it. Translations and paraphrases because they matter, but we have great translations. Uh, that's another whole topic too. But anyway, back to your question. Do, um, I take it literally. Yes, I can take it literally in that it's the word of God. Absolutely. But some of the language, like in the book of Revelation, is clearly metaphorical. It's clearly symbolic. You know, there's not, um, or Ezekiel, go to the prophet Ezekiel. There's not, well, that was real. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that because he saw real beings in heaven. But John the Revelator, for instance, you know, the, 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 the beast with 10 heads and, and uh, seven horns and all these different uh, sim- symbolic pictures that we see in the book of Re- Revelation. You can't take that literally in that that exists. But you can take it literally in that it's the word of God. So do you see where I'm going? Not everything can you take literally because some of it is meant to be metaphorical and symbolic. So you got to know your Bible well enough to know which is which. I know there's not some beast with ten heads and seven horns. At least I hope there's not. And, and all these different things you see in the book of Revelation that are clearly God giving a, a symbolic picture. Daniel had his dreams. You know, the man, the great iron, the, the man with, with four parts uh, and, and uh, all the beasts that he saw in dreams. Those are symbolic. But is it literal in that it's the word of God? Yes. All right. That's all I got time for. I would love to do one. Let's stand up together, everybody. Wouldn't you love to do one on translations? And um, oh, we could sit in here. We could have a good old time. Yeah. There's so much I wish that I could share with you. There's so much I wish I could impart to you. Um, and maybe one night we'll get in here and just do questions only. And. I'll try to answer some of this, but all Christians need to understand the translations, how we got the documents, how we got the Bible. We all need to understand that. Thank you, Jesus, for your blessing. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, bless us as we go. Thank you, Lord, that we are now married to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise as you go? God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a good night. Amen.